0: So what is the gospel? That's a pretty basic question, isn't it? I think it's one that we should be able to answer without thinking too much. If you've been in church a few decades, (laughs) what is the gospel? The word you might have heard along the way, it literally means good news. And often in the New Testament, we find the phrase The gospel of Jesus Christ, or the good news of Jesus Christ. But what exactly is that? What is the gospel? It's an essential question, and if I were to take you out to coffee, I bet you would stumble over how to answer that. I know I have. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to spend some time with Paul's letter to the Romans asking that particular question. And we're actually just going to be able to scratch the surface of it, but hopefully we will start to be able to get at a little bit of what Paul is getting at when he refers to the gospel. Romans is actually probably the best letter for us to do that with for a number of reasons. For one thing, it's the only letter that Paul wrote to a congregation that he did not start and did not know, which means he was writing to a church that was a bunch of strangers to him, people like you and me. But there's another really good reason For us to take a deeper look at this letter, it is precisely this letter that has often played an important part in people's hearts and lives being opened up to the love of God in Christ, but at the same time, it's also this letter that has often been used to create a formulaic Christianity, a formulaic Christianity, especially in the American church, a Christianity that's often been warped. Some with either-or thinking, with thinking that is centered, the gospel, around either heaven or hell. You're either an insider or an outsider. You're either subject to God's wrath or God's grace. You're saved or you're unsaved. It's the gospel we have often heard in the American church. See, we in our time, I think, have been given actually a bit of a warped, understanding of christianity and that's come from a misunderstanding of the gospel and so for all of you visual learners out there today going to try to help us might be a little bit more like a seminary class, but we're going to have a few slides. And so I've got one here for us now. For most of us in American Christianity, when we think about the gospel or when we were taught what the gospel is, our idea of that was shaped by four simple verses in Romans. Romans 3.23, then Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, and Romans 10.9. And for those of you who maybe weren't ever exposed to this, you maybe you don't know, these verses were classically called the Romans' Road. And I want to say they are great and important verses, and I still think some of the most profound verses of the Bible. But isn't something a little bit suspect when you not only define the gospel with four isolated verses, but you also teach them out of order? Did you notice that? Chapter 3, then 6. Oh, let's go back to chapter 5, and now let's jump to chapter 10 to tie it all together. Kind of makes you wonder if something's missing, doesn't it? Maybe something is a little off here. Maybe that illustration you learned isn't quite right. You remember that illustration, right? The one you could draw on a napkin at your friend's party of a stick man standing on the edge of a cliff across a great chasm. You're on one side... God is on the other side. Here you are. There God is. Never the two shall meet, but don't worry. The cross of Jesus makes a convenient little bridge for you to run from your side of the cliff or your side of the chasm to God's. It's simple enough for those of us like myself who are obviously very artistically challenged. (laughs) And there's something that is true for true about it I think but after exploring this faith of ours for a while you've got to wonder what is really the gospel okay Jordan thanks four verses out of order and a two-dimensional stick man on a napkin walking across a bridge and if you died tonight do you know for absolute certain where you would go Would you spend eternity tormented in the fires of hell, or will you be living large in a mansion built on the streets of gold and glory because you believe in the message? Well, maybe not so fast. Because what if as good and important as those four verses are and the picture, though, that we have on our napkin, what if the picture is all wrong? What if the picture we have in our head is actually missing the point? And we actually started with that picture and found four verses to make it fit. See, there's a lot of people in our time who are really frustrated and disappointed in the church and in American Christianity and they're wondering about this gospel that they were taught and they don't really see it. And the way they thought. And so there's a whole lot of people who are going back to the Bible and re-looking at what the Bible as a whole says. And what Christian teachings for 2,000 years, not just the last 100 years, have said. And started to realize that the salvation story, or the picture we have on our napkin, is not really what Paul is describing. And if that's the case, then you have to ask yourself, well, what Is the gospel anyway? So, we're going to spend the next few weeks working on that, and we're going to spend some time with Paul's letter to the Roman church. And today, we're going to actually just focus in on two of the last verses we heard read verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, because those two verses are often considered the thesis statement for the entire letter of Paul's writing to the Romans. And this is The more traditional translation, I love the message translation because it helps us hear it in a fresh way, but here's the traditional translation from the NRSV. I am not ashamed of the gospel, whatever that is. It is God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, That's the thesis statement. That's his summary for this entire letter. And there is a whole lot there in those two verses. If if we're going to start to get a hold of this gospel that Paul's talking about, then I think we have to start with what in the world he means by the righteousness of God because he says that in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So what is that? In fact, there's a good chance that what's being revealed through the gospel, our understanding of the righteousness of God, is where our confusion really lies about what the good news actually is. So let's start there. There are actually three different meanings of righteousness that has been understood throughout Christian history about what That word even means and what meaning you start with will go a long way as to how you understand the gospel so one way of trying to understand God's righteousness is what you might call the legal model of righteousness it's about abiding upon agreed set of rules or laws and to help us think about this we all have vast experience of watching too many episodes of law and order so there's your picture The legal model of righteousness, it's about having God as the just judge. God is perfectly fair always. That's what it means to call God righteousness. Now, when you use this definition, when it's your primary understanding of the word righteous... When it shapes your theology above all else, and it does make a lot of sense to think, well, God doesn't actually have any options. God has to punish me because I know I've done things wrong in my life, and I know I'm not perfect like God, so I guess I have to go to hell because I've broken all the divine laws. The judge doesn't have a choice, does the judge? They just have to follow what the law says. And, of course, the good news of the gospel, then, is that Jesus volunteered to take my place. So I get off the hook. Jesus died for me, so I don't have to be punished. Sound familiar? Sound a lot like American Christianity, doesn't it? The only problem is that there isn't actually anything just about that statement. There isn't anything perfectly fair about punishing an innocent person so that the guilty party gets to go free. Not to mention, it makes God, and this is maybe my bigger problem with it, it makes God subordinate to some higher legal authority that God has to abide by. And who's the one setting that authority? Some might say God. Well, there's some problems there, isn't there, if God has to abide By it, who gets to make the verdict anyway, whether God is an appropriate judge, whether God is actually abiding by the appropriate laws? In fact, the more questions you start to ask of this whole legal model of understanding the word righteous, the more problems you start to find with it. Something doesn't add Don't worry, there's actually another option for trying to understand how Paul is using the word righteous. And this is what's known as the moral model. So the moral model, we had the legal model, now we have the moral model, which actually works a whole lot better when we're talking about God. To call God righteous in this sense is to say that God will never do anything morally wrong. God is not going to lie, cheat, or steal from you. God is not going to play petty games with you just for kicks. God's not even going to abide by laws if they are not moral. If God is righteous, then God is perfectly moral. And this holds up a little bit better when we talk about the God revealed to us in Jesus. God will never do anything less than the best, most moral person you know. God would never do anything less than someone like Mother Teresa, for goodness sakes. Makes sense, right? Starts to sound a little better. The problem is the definition doesn't quite hold up when Paul, later on in his letter, starts to talk about you and me, the rest of us, being made righteous. Righteous. Because let's be honest, you don't have to spend that long in the church or as a Christian to know that even us faithful who say we've been made righteous are not always as moral as Mother Teresa. (laughs) In fact, I was talking to someone this week who was just telling me about how deeply their heart has been broken and how much they've been struggling by the fact that there just seems to be so much goodness and truth and kindness coming from outside the church rather than inside the church. She grew up in the church, but she's having a hard time even associating it with it anymore because she looks at what the church seems to stand for in her culture, and she doesn't see something moral. She doesn't see kindness and humility. She doesn't see the way of Jesus. So sure, God is not going to play petty games with you, but guess what? Some people might. Even those that... Paul has said are being made righteous we are not always moral and if that's the case what in the world does Paul mean when he's using that word righteousness well there's actually one other option and this option funny enough grows out of the Old Testament's use of the word it's shaped by the Hebrew scriptures the scriptures that Paul would have known forward and backwards. For thousands and thousands of years, the righteousness of God was regularly connected with the covenants, the ancient covenants, God's promised relationship with people. God was described as being righteous because God was always the one restoring and maintaining relationship, even when we are not, and so we call this the covenant model or the relationship model of righteousness and in this model here's what's key if this is what righteousness is then whatever upholds relationship between the two is what defines righteousness whatever protects maintains heals restores renews relationship defines righteousness And in the same matter, whatever degrades relationships, whatever breaks it or cheapens it or abuses it or ignores it, is unrighteousness. Which means then that to be made righteous, as Paul will later say we are, is to be brought back into relationship. It's to have relationship restored to us. And if that's the case then maybe the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of, the good news that he says is the power for our salvation, is not that God demands punishment for sin and Jesus took that punishment, but rather that in Jesus, God's unrelenting love toward us is being revealed. God's willingness to do whatever it takes to hold us in relationship, to renew us in relationship, is being revealed. God's love that will not let us go, that's always reaching out to us, is being revealed. You see, maybe the good news is that God never left us to begin with. We just stopped knowing or having faith in the love of God towards us. We stopped trusting In God's presence and graciousness towards us. By the way, that's what the word faith or belief in the New Testament actually always means. When Jesus says, believe in me, Jesus is saying, trust in me. Faith is trusting something, not accepting a certain set of truths, but trusting it. So that has me thinking that maybe the drawing on our napkin shouldn't be this great chasm between us and God. But a stick man or a stick woman with a blindfold who simply doesn't see that God is already there all around you, surrounding you, holding you, who doesn't see that maybe, maybe God is the napkin upon which our lives have been drawn. It's a very different picture, isn't it? And Jesus, Jesus is the one who comes to try to take the blindfold off. So Of course, you cannot earn God's love, and you can't get there on your own because you already have it. You've already been given it. You're already in the very life of God. You're already living in the divine flow of love. The only thing you can do is learn to trust it, which means not only to know that it's true, but to trust it enough to live as if it's true. That's the meaning of faith. Thanks, Jordan. Faith is not accepting certain beliefs. Faith is trusting something to be true, enough to live your life as if it's true. Trusting, even in the midst of pain and loneliness that will come your way, because it always does, trusting that God is there with you. Trusting in the midst of the questions that you ask about your life and and the uncertainties that you're holding about your future, trusting that whatever comes and whatever you choose or you don't choose, you are held in the very life of God. Faith is trusting that in the midst of deep loss but also in the midst of profound joy that your life is being written into the very heart of God, trusting that God is there in the midst of your greatest accomplishments, but also still there holding you in the midst of your greatest failures, exposing what needs to be exposed so they can be healed and loving you and bringing you from death to life again, bringing you into restored relationships. The righteousness of God is revealed by the good news, Paul says, because the righteousness of God is God's unrelenting, ever-present love, holding us in relationship, holding us within God's self, never letting us go, holding us through death itself. This is what is revealed to us in the life of Jesus. And this is what's being revealed to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So trust it. Believe that seemingly impossible good news. That God is the one always drawing you. Always working to heal and restore you. Trust it enough. And you will experience its power for your salvation. Not a salvation from some cosmic torture and punishment that you deserve to some cosmic paradise that you don't deserve, but your salvation from the powers of death that are always trying to grip you and diminish you and suck the goodness out of you, to a, from a salvation from that to life and fullness and divine love that you have been made for. I am not ashamed of that gospel because it has, it has the power for salvation for all who will believe it.